2: Welcome back to another episode of the Celtics Lab podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Tabatabai, joined as always by Alex Goldberg and Dr. Justin Quinn. Yes, the Seas lost to the Lakers last night amid their tumultuous Western Conference road trip, and we might get to that at the tail end of this pod, but instead we're going to focus on some of the -the off-the-court storylines. And to do exactly that, we're bringing in Dave Zirin, sports editor at The Nation, the host of the Edge of Sports podcast, and the author of The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World a warm Celtics lab. Welcome to you, Dave. Dave, welcome in.
3: Oh, it's great to be here. I feel like I should put my cards on the table and let you know I grew up in New York City in the 80s, so Boston <laughs> teams are are very difficult uh, for me to be around. I break out into hives. But it's all because um, Larry Bird ripped out my Bernard King loving heart too many times to count. So uh, I come about these scars, honestly.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, I think this year the Knicks and Celtics played a double overtime game to start the season. So, you know, if it's war, it's war, but at least it's some good games.
3: I mean, it's, it's odd. Like I've lived in the DC, Maryland area for 20 years now. So because of my kids, I've gravitated towards the wizards and, you know, my son's room is a shrine. (laughs) Uh, and so it's the Knicks it's, it's now the Knicks are sort of like more like dessert, like, Oh, how are the Knicks doing? Great. But the Boston stuff still reigns, especially, I mean, my goodness, when there was that kerfuffle a few years ago, if you remember that with John Wall and Beal and the playoffs, I felt like I was a kid again, like seeing <laughs> Isaiah Thomas rip the heart out of our team and, you know, that kind of physical uh, aggression, which I think is missing from the sport now.
2: I have to say the the feeling is not mutual because that video from uh, earlier in the season, the bing bong video I love Knicks fans. I'm so happy you're here as as a representative of that community.
3: No, I I more honestly represent the Wiz, but yes, the, the blue and orange is still, you know, runs through me somewhere. How are you feeling about the Knicks? I mean, the Knicks, I mean, I'm, I gotta be honest with you. I'm, I'm more concerned about the Wizards. They started the year as one of the hottest teams in the Eastern Conference. They're They've been, uh, you know, they've lost uh, seven of 11 games. Um, our new point guard, Spencer Dinwiddie, is averaging eight and four in his last Yo, 11 God. games. I mean, th- those are, you know, Jeff Teague numbers these days. I mean, so <laughs> oh. just ha- having a bit of a rough time uh with it the knicks are going to do what the knicks are going to do it's going to be high drama and everyone's going to take it way too seriously for a team that hasn't won a title since uh richard nixon was president
2: (laughs) all right well maybe in the spring we'll we'll bring you back for a a frank assessment of the east but today we're going to talk about things that really are bigger than basketball really quickly i'm just gonna alex you want to plug your show that i will be going to on thursday
0: Absolutely. Thanks for the setup there, Cam. So
2: if you like the
0: music that you heard at the top of this podcast, please feel free to come by to the Crystal Ballroom in Somerville, Massachusetts. It's going to be tomorrow night. Divine Sweater, the band that played that song, which I am also in, is playing a show with Beef, Local Staple, and Sinnett, uh, who's doing an album release party. Uh, doors are at 6. First Band is on at 7. Buy a Ticket come out, support local music. We love local music. Uh, And Cam's going to be there. So if you have any takes that you disagree with really virulently, you can say them to me and Cam's face.
2: Exactly. And also it's at the the Somerville Theater. So anyone who knows the area, they have a new concert venue. And I'm, I'm, no offense to Alex's music. I'm just as pumped about the venue as I am about uh, watching Alex play bass. Anyways, (laughs) that's neither here nor there. Dave, you're here to talk about uh, the rise of Ennis Cantor Freedom, the Cantor formerly known as Dennis, or the Ennis formerly known as Cantor, and is now a unique brand of political activism and agitation. You recently wrote for The Nation a column called Ennis Cantor Freedom, the NBA authoritarian against authoritarianism. I'm sure fans by now, certainly listeners to this podcast, have at least seen a snapshot of what Ennis Cantor Freedom has been up to on cable news, which we'll talk about on Twitter, which we'll talk about, and maybe it has earnest designs, but it has, it, from our perspective, come across as tone deaf at best. And in many places, he feels complicit in oppressive power structures. It doesn't seem like he's actually uh, agitating for change the right way as best we can tell. So we want to, Dave, talk to you about that, whether it's Tucker Carlson or calling out Jeremy Lin. So let's start with this, this column that you wrote for The Nation. What was the moment that you knew that you needed to write this?
3: Wow. What what an interesting starting point uh, to talk about it. I I think I felt the need to write it uh, or the idea of writing it when Ennis Cantor Freedom started to go on a frontal assault against LeBron James uh, Mm -hmm. because of Nike, because of business interests in China. And that's what I just thought was tone deaf. I think the whole thing about like politicians going after LeBron James as if he's the symbol of U.S. business relationships with China. Are you kidding me? Uh, it, it's, it, it is absurd and it feels very, very much like treating Le- LeBron James like a kind of uh, like a racial punching bag. And Mm -hmm. it's like we're going to take on LeBron James because he's black, because he's famous, because he's spoken about police brutality in the past, because, you know, like nobody other than Colin Kaepernick, he seems to raise the ire of of the white sports fan. And so Cantor Freedom, I'll just call him Ennis, Ennis gravitating towards uh, going after LeBron James. I just like that's just not the way. I mean, like, like a friend of mine, Morgan Campbell, who's a sports writer out of Canada, like he said, when people say "What about LeBron?", it feels like they're saying "What about Chicago?" When people yeah. talk about uh, police brutality, you know, it's people who have no real interest, you know, in Chicago, but are saying, you know, are just obviously bringing that up to distract and um, and demean. Now, um, but I think Ennis really does care about China. I think he really does care about the oppression of the Uyghur Muslim community there. I think I I take him absolutely at his word that he's sincere about this. But like, as I wrote in the column, it's like, how do you go about showing that? How do you go about actually building solidarity with the Uyghur community? How do you go about fighting labor abuses? Do you do it by going after LeBron James and then appearing? on Tucker Carlson. And let me just say a quick thing about that. That's when I was like, okay, I got to write this. Cause at first I was just like, yeah, I don't know if I want to do this, but to me, Tucker Carlson, and I've been invited on Tucker Carlson show a bunch. I've never said yes. I've always felt like it's kind of the, the red line, if you will, you know, like I, 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 there are other Fox shows I would go on, you know, there are other Fox shows I would be like, yeah, I'm going to go there and debate. You know, but th- there's something about his particular brand of you know white nationalist power hour rhetoric
2: mm-hmm. that, to
3: me, is is a particularly a- A red line and so but but at the very least I can understand why someone would want to go on and argue and respect that like okay I want to try to reach his audience and I'm not going to kowtow to what he's saying I'm gonna challenge him on his own show I've got a lot of respect I disagree with that approach tactically but I've got I think people should freeze him out but I've got a lot of respect for people who do do that that's obviously not what Ennis was there to do I mean that that was a love fest and I think once you choose to have a love fest with Tucker Carlson, you're actually choosing a side uh, when it comes to how best to deal with these issues, particularly the issue of China. No, I, I really feel
2: that sentiment in our Celtics Lab chat. I have kind of said, so my, my family's from Iran, and I have said of Ennis, you know, if you're of the Middle Eastern diaspora fighting for change back home, you you use whatever power you can get here in the States. And appearing on Tucker Carlson was, was a, a camel back breaking straw for me. That was a, no, this is absolutely not
3: <laughs> permissible in any way. Not how you do it. And then um, I, it, I, I went from being sort of disappointed because I've written in the past, you know, I'll say it straight up, like very favorably about Ennis Cantor freedom, about sure. uh, him You know what he's had to sacrifice with regards to Erdogan's um, government in Turkey. uh, Some of the things he's chosen to say, some of the issues he's chosen to step out on a limb on. Like I've, I've given him credit, and I'm and I would never say just shut up and play to any athlete. You know anybody, no matter what your politics, if you want to speak out, more power to you. But I think as as sports commentators, broadcasters, journalists, it's patronizing if we just report what they say without any sort of critical assessment of not just what he's saying, but who he's saying it to. And I I, I felt it though that, okay, this is actually could get very ugly very quickly. Uh, When he came out uh, more recently and bashed uh, Jeremy Lin,
2: Mm
3: -hmm. uh, you know, for assumedly, I guess, because Lin signed a contract to play ball in China, I guess. and. It's, that's just ugly stuff. I mean, we're living in a time right now where um, violent crimes against Asians and Asian Americans, Asian Pacific Islanders, is it, it, at stratospheric proportions. It was whipped up by the previous presidential administration. And to go out there and try to make Jeremy Lin the face of, of China at this political moment yeah. in particular, it, that's dangerous. You know, that's an actually a dangerous thing to do. That actually puts Jeremy Lin at peril. And when you, when you hook that in with the, the whole Tucker Carlson and the undercurrent of violence that I think thrums through Tucker's show, um, yeah, this isn't good. And, you know, I, I've reached out to Ennis's people just to be from the contact info I had, sure. just to put in my own two cents and be like, Cause, yo, this isn't good. Because people I know who knew him, that like actually know him. They, they, there's kind. Of, I'll be honest with you. There's a bit of a split between some people who think this is sort of a very calculated uh, power move about you know post career media do, doing this kind of work, and there are other people that just think like yeah he's just he's just messing up you know and he he doesn't have a lot of guile you know he's very smart but he's he doesn't think things through. I've had people say that to me. And so for him appearing on Tucker Carlson was just like appearing on CNN, MSM. It was just like, oh, I can talk about this on a major cable news network. So, you know, I, I just I put that out with so much charity because it's like you want to be able to bring him away from there because he's yeah. in a position, I think, to be really destructive, not just to people like a Jeremy Lin or like a LeBron James the individual, but I think even destructive for how people even understand how we should be dealing with China right now. How should we be building solidarity with the Uyghur Muslims? How should we be talking about Nike uh, labor abuses? Yeah. You know, like there's a way we can do that that builds an international solidarity that puts pressure on our own government for its business dealings with China, that pressures the phil knight and the executives at nike not the athletes that they employ um and uh he he could take us very far afield from that given his power and his platform
1: that's actually a really big concern that i have and anyone who has spent any length of time trying to be an activist usually tends to brush up against something similar in which they find that they are not the the protagonist. Right. And when you add in the amount of power that you are alluding to his platform, this becomes a really serious issue. And it's one we can discuss a little bit more at length, but uh, it's definitely something that I want to talk, talk more about.
3: Yeah, well, definitely. So definitely.
1: Definitely. Dave, I, I think,
2: I mean, you kind of, kind of uh, you definitely fit in with the Celtics Lab community. Let me tell you that much. <laughs> let me I'm going to swing you to Alex to talk about these things piecewise, because I think you really set the table well. I think this idea that Ennis is maybe a young man who is in over his head or Ennis is a young man who is in some ways being radicalized is a fair question that in 2021, anyone is privy to wonder and anyone is unfortunately open to fall prey to. So with, uh, I like the the idea of uh, a charitable read on this. I mean, with respect to Ennis, please come on the podcast and tell us what you're thinking. Uh, we're going to talk about his appearance on the rewatch with Eton Thomas in a little bit, and that was revelatory in its own way. But let me swing you to Alex, and we'll go through these issues that we've been bringing up kind of piecewise with a little more specificity.
3: Yeah, but before Alex jumps in, you know, one thing we've certainly learned with the whole January 6th is that sometimes you think, sometimes we're finding people who are both radicalized and in over their heads. Yep, <laughs> very
2: well said. Someone who teaches high school students, uh, maybe not radicalized, but over their heads and on the wrong path is yeah. is horrifyingly common. Yeah.
0: So Dave, thanks so much for coming on. Um, I
2: have a couple of things and
0: admittedly, uh, you know, in just speaking, you addressed a lot of the kind of talking points that I was going to hit on, but I'm going to kind of format it in the following sense. I feel like Getting more specifically into what Ennis has been saying, there's kind of a few groups of people that he's specifically going after in the media. I want to start with this with this pair, uh, two of whom are commonly thought of as the two best basketball players of all time. So Ennis is going big fish hunting right away. Um, so obviously we mentioned LeBron James at the top uh, and that Ennis had some very pointed directed words at LeBron. Uh, And, you know, last night when uh, Ennis was in Los Angeles, the Lakers, uh, he had a chance to again engage LeBron. Uh, It sounds like he didn't, and it didn't really seem like that happened in the first time. He never has really attempted to directly engage LeBron. Uh, He did, however, offer to kind of educate him, so to speak, uh, which might have been a reference to some old uh, NBA China stories, particularly Daryl Morey's comments uh, about, uh, and and LeBron's subsequent response to Daryl Morey's comments uh, about getting educated on the issue of China. So you've got that, and then you've also got, uh, and this is uh, talking about Michael Jordan, who he said does not do enough for the Black community, uh, and he kind of set himself up as a voice for the voiceless. Uh, obviously, you know, with Jordan, there's a complicated history there to invoke uh, with Republicans by sneakers too and things like that. Um, but I guess the question I have with regard to Ennis's uh, kind of work uh, talking about LeBron and Michael is that there's, there's this kind of problematic uh, rel- relationship, not only to and what what you kind of just laid out, that Jordan and LeBron are themselves these kind of gigantic international symbols. Um, There's also the reality that, you know, Michael and LeBron are in some ways different sides of this kind of outwardly activist facing persona while themselves being, you know, representatives of billion dollar brands internationally. I guess my question to you is, does Ennis, does Ennis's criticisms have any water here? Is there anything there that is kind of legitimate or is this all just, you know, as you said, kind of punching down on, uh, you know, people who have come to embody, uh, you know, these kind of thoughts about that, the people have about black athletes in general?
3: Uh, Here's my concern my grandparents uh, came to this country at the turn of the 20th century and they were uh, Jewish and they were from Russia and that's how they were seen in New York. And that's how they were seen where they were uh, living in Brooklyn. Um, Over the course of my family's life, they made that transition as so many immigrants do to being white. Now, it's not to say that you know, being Jewish can sometimes make you a target to some really horrible folks. But in the broad sense, the Irish, the Italians, the Jews, you know, they, they, they went on this immigrant journey towards whiteness and towards um, a, a set of privileges that people of color in this country just do not have. Um, I'm concerned that Ennis Cantor, becoming Ennis Cantor Freedom and going on Tucker Carlson is like his announcement that I'm white now. I'm no longer the Turkish guy with the thick black stubble, who you, you know, who, who you laughed at my accent or whatever. I'm one of you, you know, I, I'm and, and one of you being like white America, you know, I'm one of you, I'm on Tucker Carlson, you know? And then he goes on Tucker Carlson and he's like, why would anybody complain about this country? You know, it, it like the, the kind of the, and I thought that was incredibly tone deaf because in a, in a real shot at the NBA players, who have stood up to uh, racism and police violence? Um, over, who are overwhelmingly black, of course. So it, it's like to be that tone deaf about what your teammates have been organizing around and risking, you know, their own platforms for, uh, was was to me just plain tone deaf. And then the Jeremy Lin thing, and it's like, oh my god, you know, he's he's trying to throw this hate on on the most prominent Asian basketball player on earth. Uh, what what the hell are you doing? And the education thing, I mean, that's, yes, LeBron did say, I need to get educated on this. But to not know that to call out this prominent black athlete, basically is being stupid, who famously didn't go to college, and you're you're playing with a lot of fire with that. And then the Michael Jordan comment, it's like the mask is completely off. It's like, I have a million critiques about Michael Jordan. I have a chapter about Michael Jordan in a book I wrote, but to say like, Michael Jordan doesn't stand up for the black community. I mean, that really does sound like something Ted Cruz would say as, as as this just sort of racial dig. And for what it's worth, you know, I, I can't even believe I'm defending Michael Jordan, but he writes tons of checks. Uh, to causes that that deal with the black uplift and education, the thing problem I've always had with Jordan is that he doesn't really put his mouth where his money is, and actually then speak out for the things that he's funding monetarily. Because his voice, I think, would be really important. And you know, this is the thing: it's like his voice would also be very important if he did what he promised the United Students Against Sweatshops that he would do in the '90s. And that's check for himself what Nike's labor practices are. He promised to do that, and he never did it. And he did it because he was pressed by USAS to do so. And by the way, that's how you do international solidarity, not what Cantor Freedom is talking about. Um, and take it over. Take, take that same sentiment over over to LeBron. It's like again, like this idea that that you're responsible for Nike's labor practices. If you work for Nike, yeah, they should say something. Yeah, they should speak out. But Cantor doing it by playing, I mean, he's straight up playing racial politics to get at his ends. His ends is he wants accountability for China. There you go. But playing racial politics to get there is so poisonous that I would say that he doesn't, like, all right, he has a point, but his journey to get to that point goes through the fires of hell with him wearing a gasoline suit.
2: Yeah. I mean, punctuated least by which that today Tucker Carlson was defending uh, Vladimir Putin. And it's just like that we, Justin and I talk about intersectionality all the time in in terms of advocacy and, and stuff here domestically, but it would seem to me that I think Cantor struggles to piece issues and values, because I think he maybe has a big nexus of all of these things and is increasingly knowledgeable about the state of the world, but where his value system and placing them in different contexts and different uh, issues of the day. I mean, we've said in our chat, it sounds like he was given a neocon playbook to read from, and he's Mm -hmm.
3: hoping that his value systems can fit in. No, that's a great point. And to to speak to that directly, I mean more broadly. You know, we're, we're living. If, if we look at our system globally as one of, you know, bourgeois capitalism, you know, it's it's in great crisis right now, and one of the one of the alternatives being offered is authoritarian regimes, mm-hmm. and operating as a network of authoritarian, hyper sexist, hyper masculinist. Um, authoritarian regimes. That's what Tucker Carlson loves. That's what Vladimir Putin wants. That's what Steve Bannon wants. That's what Donald Trump wants. Bolsonaro. I could go down the list. Uh, Modi in India. But, but what, what's scary is that cantor, a person who wants change is attaching himself to that because Mm -hmm. he sees a system in crisis and says, this is the train that's moving. So I'm gonna get on that train and try to affect the change that I wanna see by partnering with the John Boltons of the world, by showing up at events uh, where uh, Jared Kushner is and cuddling up to him. I mean, that's where he's going. I wish there was a kind of mass internationalist left that someone like Enos Cantor could Mm -hmm. say, hey, I want to align with that and align with the Chinese workers who are going on strike on a daily basis at cost to their lives and and and, well, and loved ones even. And he's not uh, doing that, partly right. because it doesn't exist in nearly the numbers it would need to, to materially matter, but partly because he's just making a very wrong political choice right now. Or maybe it's a right political choice for him, but whatever it is, I think we have to critique the hell out of it.
0: So to that end, you kind of led perfectly into my next question. So in the article, you specifically uh this kind of struggle in that there's, this, there's the state of the world, as you kind of just laid out, and then there's this kind of lack of a coherent, united, anti-imperialist left movement. Uh, and we've talked a lot about intersectionality, and we've talked a lot about kind of the challenges of creating something like that. And I guess my thinking on that is that, Cantor is going after, uh, you know, LeBron, he's going after MJ, he's going after Nike, he's going after uh, Joe Tsai, among other people. And all of those people share a couple of things, namely that they are, you know, through largely uh, being involved, I guess not in the case of Joe Tsai, but in the case of Nike, MJ, and LeBron, all of these uh, companies where people are enormously wealthy as a result of international uh athletic competition and i guess my question is to you dave and i i would love to hear your response on this is is it even really possible to form this kind of anti-imperialist left coalition and is it possible is is it worth considering whether billionaire athletes and companies like nike really have a place in this movement and this could also extend to you know the nba for example like is is there a way to bring, you know, people who are kind of profiting massively off of the state of the world as it exists into this movement in a kind of coherent and cohesive way.
3: You know, uh, Muhammad Ali was part of a mass internationalist left movement and identified the struggle of Black Americans with the struggle of the the Vietnamese for their own liberation. And uh, when when he did so, uh, one of the things that allowed him to do it Above all else, in addition to his politics and his courage, was that he was commercially untethered. You know, already for years, commercial interests or what existed of them internationally. The globalization piece wasn't nearly as intense as it is now, but he was considered as fight promoter Bob Arum put it, a dead piece of merchandise. So he was commercially untethered. His money came from prize fighting um, exclusively, and that had been taken away from him. Um, I think when you're talking about the kind of movement that we need to build, um, you know, movements are complicated things. Uh, in in some respects, if we were, uh, in the throes of such a struggle, um, the, the, I think the expectation would have to be some sort of renunciation of these commercial entities. So it's like, it's not that there wouldn't be a place for a LeBron James or a Michael Jordan, but it would have to be from a place of intellectual consistency where it's like, yeah, like someone like LeBron, who's been heroic in speaking out um, in terms of racism and systemic violence here at home, um, would need to develop a politics that connected that to oppressed groups abroad and the way that state violence is used against them and see it as one struggle and one fight. And to do that would mean him confronting a lot of his own commercial interests directly. Because I think, Probably what I just described would be pretty close to his politics if you actually asked him, like, what do you think about people who are killed by police in Singapore? Like, I'm sure he would be appalled and say, yeah, that's just like what we, de- we have to deal with here, of course. And, but at the same time, like for him to be, first of all, there would need to be a movement built in the first place. And then we would want someone like LeBron James to be able to amplify that movement and use his platform to do so. So the first step is building the movement. You know, LeBron's not going to build the movement, but he could amplify it. But for him to have a place in it, yeah, I think it would take a political reckoning with his own commercial interests. I, I, I do think that's that's the case. But that that being said, I mean, I just kept thinking also, like, you talked about intersectionality and you talked about some of the people that Cantor had called out, and you mentioned a, a corporation and you know, three people of color and, you know, including Joseph Tsai. And it's just like that, that's the method that I feel like can't, that's why I mentioned before about whiteness too, like in authoritarianism globally. Like I think that's the method that he's going about this and it's not, um, and, and and so it's like if we if we think about the kind of movement that's going to need to be built, it's going to have to be a movement that's built on anti racist principles. It's going to have to be a movement that's conscious of who's being called out and who's being called in, and you know. And, and I I wish that Cantor uh, was spending as much energy going against the Republican Party, Phil Knight, uh, shoe executives at the top of the of the pyramid, yes. uh, as a as a way to exert this pressure and not trying to exert it by trying to really shine his spotlight as brightly as possible on the LeBron Jameses of this world and then not even having the, the basic humanity to then go up to LeBron and say, do you want to talk or do you not want to talk? And maybe LeBron would tell him to go fuck himself. But it's like, I feel like if you're going to call someone out in the media, it's like, who's a colleague, a fellow union member. I mean, let's not forget. I mean, you have an obligation to, to, to then try to actually have a dialogue with them and not call them uneducated.
1: Um, it might not be the best form of labor solidarity, but I, I really do feel like Enos is learning in a hurry. The, the, Potential pitfalls of trying to do this the way that he's doing it. Uh, in that that podcast that we we mentioned earlier, he does walk back a lot of the things that he says. But you know, going for these executive not executives these these people of color instead of the executives by picking these polarizing figures that the right likes to trot out a lot of the time. He does align himself with these people in a way that you know. I am not entirely sure I believe him when he says that he, for example, accidentally said what he said. Like, I know he was led to say it. Say it and Maybe he wanted to satisfy, as we sometimes say in survey research, which means tell them what they want to hear. Yeah. But again, to go back to this, this concept of becoming white, there, there does seem to be this uncomfortable dance going on with him like enjoying the the pluses of this new identity that he has, even just as a U.S. citizen, you know, even if yeah. we put aside the whiteness. Yeah. And he doesn't really seem to be embracing the, the more difficult parts of, of trying to use your platform in this way.
3: No, no, it's just I think he's gotten – a lot more love than criticism. And in a weird way, it's almost like a professional wrestling thing. Like he's getting cheers in arenas when he's being brought in. It's like Enos, Cantor, Freedom. I mean, and then, I mean,
0: I was there in the Celtics Nets game and the at the day after he changed his name, they were just they were completely raucous. The fans yeah. were up and out of, off their feet. It was nuts.
3: Yeah. And it's uh, you know, you call yourself freedom, you might as well be hacksaw Jim Duggan and come out with a two by four. And start chanting USA. So, you know, and and he's getting more publicity certainly than at any time in his in his playing career, which you know you have to say has been decent, but not esteemed relative to where he was drafted. That's putting and, it so nicely. I'm, I'm trying <laughs> to be nice here. I'm trying to be nice. Uh, he's been a contributor at the NBA level, um, <laughs> and and. and I got to say, and also just to be clear, it's like I'll I'll criticize Joseph Tsai every day till the cows come I mean, I've written columns criticizing LeBron, and it's all about, like, I feel, and I'm not saying I get it right, but I don't, but it's about the tone that we take and the degree to which, with the critique, also comes the ability to try to reach broader layers of people as we do it. And um, I see Cantor reaching out to some scary folks while at the same time shutting the door on people. Like, and that's the thing that's also bad because it's like you want, like, say, people who are active um, in the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, you want them to be on the side of Chinese workers. You want them to be on the side of protesting Nike. But it's like, and I'm just doing this based on broad Twitter stuff, they now think Ennis Cantor Freedom might as well be protesting the taking down of statues in Virginia. You know it, it's like that's that that's the reaction because he's going after LeBron, because he's calling him uneducated. I mean, th- because he's lecturing to Michael about the black community. I mean, that's the stuff people are fixating on. What mean? So that but that what that also does is then push them away from the issues that he cares about, some of which I think are very laudable.
1: So I've been like dancing around the issue of activism and Enos' participation and lessons learned. And for me, A lot of what he seems to be going through now is something that I've gone through over the last several decades of trying to be an activist and then an organizer. And I I differentiate those two very intentionally because what Enos is doing is a form of activism and activism is not bad. It's just also very often not so effective and potentially fraught with exactly what we're seeing him go through. You know, when I first participated in the Iraq war, uh, Anti-Iraq War demonstrations in the early 2000s. It was a life-changing experience. It completely changed my politics from being a Democrat to being further to the left. And we also did not stop anything. <laughs> the Iraq War continued to pace. That got me thinking. What am I doing wrong? I started, you know, trying to be a little bit more reflective on how I participated in these things and you know, over time became involved in movements like Black Lives Matter, the Dream Defenders and such, and learned about the difference between that and organizing where you stop being the protagonist and you you start being someone who works with the so-called voiceless. You don't, no one's voiceless. Some people just don't have the same access for very structural reasons. And the goal of using your platform, if you want to be successful, in my opinion, is to remove yourself, to decenter yourself from being the protagonist, and to use your platform to let the voiceless, so-called, have a voice themselves and follow their lead and their efforts instead of parachuting in with a limited range of information. I, I'm I have a PhD in anthropology that has to do with studying migrants moving through Mexico and how people construct the needs of transportation systems and and such that I could, if I wanted to be a voice for the voiceless, put myself out there and and say, migrants need this, migrants need that. But I, I am not a replacement for them. I don't consider myself to be an expert enough to speak for them in a way that is fair. So when I do talk about migrants, I talk to the people in Tenosique, the Seteta Dos, for example, who are migrants that run that place and work together with experts like myself to further their cause. And that is how I use my very limited platform to do a similar sort of a thing. And I really want to see him. I hope you he hear something like this, if not this, that pushes him to do the same kind of a thing. Because again, if you do this kind of I'm going to go on a right wing talk show to reach an audience, even if you do a much better job than what he did, you can still kind of become their own political football by clever editing and so forth and so on that he claims happened to him, and I don't doubt to a certain extent that it did, but it's something that he really definitely needs to work on if he's going to keep doing this in my opinion.
3: Yeah, I agree. Um, you know that that that's some serious lessening though. that that you've done and that you've been through over the course of many years. Like we got to press the fast forward button on this and, you know, some basic principles of solidarity need to be drilled in his head, which is one, don't, don't F over your coworkers. Don't appear on Tucker Carlson unless you're (laughs) there to try to rip his head off. But even in that case, you know, maybe you don't, um, Solidarize with the the black struggle in the United States, I think is an essential, because I think that's a motor of struggle throughout the world. And attempt then to connect those struggles here in the States with oppressed peoples abroad by, as you said, I think that's just so important, um, centering other voices. I mean, someone, when you have a platform like him, I mean, if he, if he, it, there's a power to an athlete centering their own voice and saying, I'm part of a tradition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, Ali, Billie Jean King and the like, but, uh, but, but I think that, you know, finding other people to speak who otherwise have not been speaking or have, or as Arundhati Roy said, you know, there's no such thing as the voiceless. There's just the deliberately unheard, um, to trying to get some of those folks heard, I think is, is really important, but you know, this is where we are. And, uh, there. they're, they're There are no shortcuts really to where we want to go. Uh, And I think having, I think being unafraid though to to have these debates out with Cantor and the like, Cantor Freedom and the like are are so important because we got to go on record at least, even if we're losing and put a marker in the ground about what we think uh, the correct path is. So
0: to that end, thank you for saying that, really uh, coaching stuff from both you and Justin there. Um, And, you know, I think kind of one path forward that you have written about pretty extensively actually comes uh, from both the NBA's history and also, to a degree, the NFL's history. Uh, You've obviously written a lot about Colin Kaepernick. You've also written a lot about Mahmoud abdul rauf who uh, both had these kind of critical flashpoint moments where they very visibly and vocally took a stand against racial injustice on a kind of national stage and very seriously used their platforms and used their kind of celebrity status to do something pretty impressive there. But one of the challenges of figures like Rev and Kaepernick is, of course, there's the immediate corporate response, which was effectively to run both of them out of the league, um, you know, in the case of the NBA under David Stern and in the case of the NFL, more recently with Kaepernick, who hasn't gotten a job despite Zach Wilson somehow being employed, which is incredible. Um, but so we got that. Florida, man, you
3: put <laughs> that... to so many places.
0: I just, I it, it came to my mind and I had to do oh. it right here. I'm so sorry. Okay. But... So with regard to Cap and Mahmoud abdul rauf they did some incredible things, but that came at a pretty severe cost to both of them. And it also is challenging because Kaepernick, I think perhaps didn't intend for this to be the case, but nonetheless, he did become this kind of punching bag for the right and he became this figure that really um, turned a lot of people away from that through the actions that he took, which I think all of us agree were totally justified and reasonable, but nonetheless really alienated a broad swath of people. I guess my question is, if we're talking about intersectionality and building these movements to confront some of these kind of odious elements of our society and of the world in general, uh, to kind of take on the Phil Knights and the kind of corporate titans that Uh, are supporting this stuff. Does the NBA need another Kaepernick? Does the NBA need this kind of visible leader? And how can that happen? Is is there a model for that happening that brings people together more so than uh, Kaepernick, who I think, again, totally justified in his actions. Unintended consequences of such were that a lot of people who might have been receptive to that message, if it came in, I don't know, a gentler fashion, were very turned off by that. And is that even desirable?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of things uh, you brought up so much. Um, One, I don't think there is a more gentle gesture than taking a knee. I mean, that's why Nate Boyer and Colin Kaepernick came up with that gesture in the first place. As Nate Boyer said, you take a knee when you pray, you take a knee when you're proposing in marriage, you take a knee when the coach is getting serious. And we thought it would show proper respect for the ritual while registering our dissent. I think what Colin Kaepernick and Nate Boyer and all of us learned, much to their shock, was that if people don't want to hear the message, they're not gonna care how the messenger is dressed up. You know, whether it was taking a knee or, you know, waving around his dick, I mean there there would have been uh, the same reaction, I would argue, uh, which was one of abject horror, uh, because the division, it's not Colin Kaepernick that was dividing people or polarizing people is, you know, racism and inequality and police violence. I mean, so the terrain is already profoundly divided. So I don't think any athlete should and I don't think any athlete could necessarily bring people together because we are a chasm apart. And the best we can do right now is organize our side and fight for what we think needs to be fought for, because that's certainly what the other side is doing. For some God knows reason, we we just elected an an octogenarian who still believes it's bipartisan (laughs) Cold War Washington of 1975. And that's totally not the playing field that he's playing on. Like He's playing chess and they're playing paintball with acid inside the pellets. Uh, it does no idea what's going on. Um, so so that, that, that's one thing. Uh, the, the, so the divisions are already there. The second thing is you said, does the NBA need, need a Kaepernick? I mean, I think it's like all sports leagues need a thousand Kaepernicks, you know, let, let a thousand Kaepernicks bloom. Uh, because, you know, we've seen that at the high school level. That's what my book, The Kaepernick Effect is about. We've seen it at the college level. Uh, you've seen a little bit of it in the pros but, you know, the, as long as there's police violence, then, um, then I think acts of protest have every, have every reason to, to exist. Uh, but w- one thing about it, though, you also mentioned about how, you know, can it end differently than Raouf and Kaepernick? And I really wish what I'm about to say wasn't the case. But one of the things that gives what Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf did or what Colin Kaepernick did, one of the things that gave it power what Megan Rapino did, one of the things that gave it power is that there's risk involved. So it's like, because there's risk, we pay attention because there's risk. We wonder what's going to happen next because there's risk. We want to know what death threats are coming in. We all follow it like this, you know, what's Donald Trump saying all this stuff, you know? And when George Clooney says something, it's like, who gives a shit? You know, there's no risk there. And I wish that wasn't the case because it puts an extraordinary amount of pressure on the athlete, you know, that, that, that this is a possibility, but you know, that's one thing that's a fact is that, you know, if you look back to the black lives matter demonstrations of last summer, uh, people risk all the time when they do activism, there are all kinds of risks out there once you do it. And I mean, I, I want all athletes to have informed consent, you know, and know that there is risk going in. So they're not like, holy shit, I just lost my career. But you know, that, that, that is part of the recipe that's going to go into us, uh, baking a new cake here.
1: A big ask too. I, I know that Jim Brown has been a very big face in that push to use the platform, uh, in a way that I think is much more constructive and healthy. I think that, uh, Ennis should consider listening to, his teammate a little bit more about some tactics and strategies, particularly when he thinks he's educated. Maybe he should take a page out of Jalen's book and, and be a little bit more circumspect about what education on a subject really is and whether or not he is really comfortable speaking on it. You should also be aware, and maybe this is not going to be the same for him because of that, you know, prescribed whiteness, uh, is Jalen gets really tired now because. He's all, anytime anything comes up that has to do with police violence against minority communities or anything like that in a press scrum, like he gets asked about it. And, you know, that's, that's hard. That's a lot of emotional labor that he has to go through in the public eye all the time. And, you know, for the largest part, because he is not connected to these communities in the same way, Enos doesn't have to deal with it.
3: Yeah. You no, there's a pressure on Jalen Brown that comes from a lot of directions. I'm privy to some of it, like whether it's, you know, come speak to our students at Harvard. Like, how do you how do you say no to that? You know, and to, you know, ha- have something to say about your own teammate and his canter freedom. Do you think LeBron is uneducated? It's it's too much. And that's something actually I pushed back on with some folks on some radio because they, they were also upset about Cantor freedom. And they were like, I can't wait till Jalen Brown, you know, gives him a piece of his mind. And it's just like, that's not Jalen Brown's job. His job is to play for the Celtics, you know, and if, and what, and, and I think it's amazing that Jalen Brown was inspired by the movements of last year, but now that those movements have dipped a little bit, and I do think they're coming back, but now that they're dipped a little bit, that doesn't mean he has to be the standard bearer for it. You know, any more, then it means that Colin Kaepernick has to speak out every time something terrible happens. I mean, you know, some some people are made for this, and some people are made for doing it in a different way. And I don't think we should put value judgments on it necessarily. Muhammad Ali loved the fact, as he put it, he said, "I'm the onlyest athlete people talk to like a senator," and he loved that. And uh, but that that's not for everybody by any stretch.
2: And also, it goes from being an orator and a leader to the problem I think we see in media now where it's so transactional and this, this like gospel of uh, not taking sides so that you have to have both sides, even though that's a a construct in its own right. So the suggestion that Jalen has to be asked about Cantor, not just so people can aggregate it and get clicks, but also to like intellectually balance an argument doesn't make any sense. And so to your point, I don't think that even if a player took the mantle of being a generational voice I don't think it works in the same way because it's not, hey, I have a mission and let me talk about it when it's relevant. It suddenly becomes I have to talk about everything under this broad, broad umbrella or otherwise I'm sort of some sort of like uh, snub pariah who only talks about what I want to talk about. And it's just not a particularly fair construct, I don't think.
3: Yeah, and I think people, we we don't do history very well in this country. And if we did history better, we'd know that these voices of a generation... Oh, are you a history teacher? Is that what you teach? My (laughs) wife's a history (laughs) teacher. We talk about it all the
2: time. We're doing better every day.
3: (laughs) That's not to say you don't do history well. When I say media, I mean like institutionally, they're banning textbooks and they're preventing things from being taught by risking your job or jail time if you say certain words. I don't know if you heard, but in Wisconsin, one of the words that they want to ban is intersection. Yeah. Oh, yeah because they don't know it, it, intersectionality, it's like they've sort of heard about it, but they're not sure. So they just put the word intersection on their list of banned words. So we don't do history well in this country, despite no the brave people like yourself who every day try to fight back, and, and my partner too, damn it, I'll give her a shout out. Um, but the, what, if we did it, if, if people knew their history, they would know that, people, that that voices of a generation, they arise out of movements. You know, they don't come down from Planet Awesome and build movements. Mm -hmm. and So people have to look uh, for the voices that are part of the struggle. And I think then athletes can play a role in amplifying those voices and helping center those voices and helping center movements. Um, And I think if we understood it that way more, and if we we understood the relationship between culture and street protests a little more uh, nimbly, we wouldn't just be waiting for the next Ali as if Muhammad Ali would have even have happened without the 1960s.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really salient point. And, you know, it kind of comes down to if we want to use the Celtics kind of most prominent example of Jalen Brown and kind of what we're talking about, about kind of the burden that he is kind of carrying and having to be asked about all this stuff all the time, every time that it comes up for the fact that he is vocal about it and that he has kind of established himself, you know, I think the kind of the thing that strikes me is it's it's a, it's one thing to admire and respect and support an athlete like Jalen Brown for speaking truth to power, um, but it it doesn't mean as much if you aren't out there with him. It doesn't mean as much if you aren't able to bring yeah. use that to kind of bring yourself into that space of, all right, what am I doing? What am I doing to kind of contribute to this culture and to address these concerns that, you know, people like Jalen have been talking about and using their platform to express, what am I doing to get involved? And I think about kind of the incidents of racial bias and uh, kind of violence that, you know, the Celtics have been through as a team in the past few years and, you know, sometimes I think it starts with the small things. It's like, no, don't be a dumbass and throw a water bottle at Kyrie Irving. Like, don't Mm -hmm. be a, you know, commenting about on on Twitter, about how, you know, all of these things about how, like, you're entitled to uh, where athletes choose to go in free agency. You know, there's little kind of things that you can do in your own life to change your perspective and to kind of educate yourself. And I think, where you see a difference between people like Jalen and people like Enos is that Jalen is a space opener, not just in his playmaking. He was a much better playmaker than Ennis. But um <laughs> he he is a space opener. He's a guy who starts conversations but opens them up and brings other people in. And Ennis strikes me as kind of somebody who's trying to be a conversation finisher. He's mm-hmm. trying to kind of close these things off and say, no, this is how it is. This is what you must do. I have this like very clear and defined set of how the world should work and you should listen to me. And there's a subtle difference uh, in that. And it's not something that's always easy to detect, but I think it strikes me as a big reason as to why Jalen is able to be a really effective Uh, kind of advocate for change and for the causes that he believes in. And Enos is really struggling with that.
3: Yes, struggling. But at the same time, I'd say, you know, he had an opening and an opportunity to talk to LeBron James when he made his first comments and LeBron put it out there. All he has to do is get in touch with me. I I don't, I think if he had, I don't think, I think LeBron already put it in the media. It would have looked, I mean, LeBron cares what the media thinks. It would have looked terrible if he then had taken LeBron up on that and then LeBron hadn't have done it, instead, he doubled down and then went with the education comment. And I think I hate to say it, but I, I feel like he knew exactly what he was doing with that. and so so in, and if you're LeBron now, why the hell would you ever talk to him at this point? You know that that's done. So he went from having an inn to talk about China's Nike labor practices with the most famous face of Nike, save Michael Jordan and maybe Tiger Woods, and stepped away from that to instead throw down with some more insults. I mean, what a waste unless you're trying to be, to use your term, a conversation finisher instead of a conversation starter.
2: Well, I'm going to finish the conversation right now. How's that? Uh, So Dave, I have one last question uh, for all of us actually. Um, But Dave, I want, I want you to just plug uh, where folks can find you because I'm sure you've, you've made a few new fans uh, today. So tell the people where you're writing, where you're talking, what you're working on.
3: Well, I don't know about all that, but um, (laughs) I'm at edge of sports on Twitter. If people have any questions based on anything I said on this pod, I'll leave the, the old DMs open once, uh, once it's up and posted. And uh, I'll, I'm happy to continue the discussion.
2: Yeah, we, this was great. I mean, th- what I love about this is that we're all on the same page. And this was, I think, cathartic in a weird way because yeah. some of the Cantor stuff. It's, it's been hard. Yeah. Uh, perpl- I mean, similarly, Dave, I've defended Cantor, or Cantor Freedom in the past. Mm-hmm. And that feels harder to do by the hour. But I do think I mean we have occasional uh, comments for listeners of the podcast about like oh these are just <laughs> unwieldy left wing nuts and be that as it may thank you for the compliment let's let's end here let's go around the horn and Dave if you're okay I'll start with you let's shine light on either NBA players or people who are doing it correctly who are advocating for change the right way who are. You know, moving and shaking with whatever platform they've got. I'll start uh, just to buy time for you guys. I've been so moved by John ja Morant. He's a kid, so his expectations, even though he has a millionaire's paycheck, he's still a young, young, young man. And his uh, 25 days of Memphis charity uh, shines light on local things, and I think making change locally is really powerful. And maybe Ja has the chops to be a leader of of people but starting small and starting earnest, I I think is a great place. So John Morant, I'm sure, you know, I bet he listens all the time. Uh, That has really moved me. I find that really powerful. And again, I think ending on shining light because I mean, there's no darker corner of the world than Ennis Cantor freedom on Tucker Carlson. So let's, (laughs) let's go on the other side of the spectrum.
3: So Dave, sorry to put you on the spot, but what's okay. There's so much light. I mean, this book I wrote, The Kaepernick Effect is about light. It's about hope. It's about all these young people who are using the anthem space to speak about what they want this country to be. And I love that people are using sports as that kind of platform. But how can I not just give a shout out to Lewis Hamilton who's setting all kinds yep. of Formula One records and he's you know messing with Schumacher as the greatest to ever do it. And he's wearing LGBTQ rights Mm-hmm. uh colors and helmets when he goes into Saudi Arabia. I mean that 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 takes some real sand. And uh so big shout out to Lewis Hamilton for uh being the kind of amplifier that we would want professional athletes to be.
2: Cool. I love that. Alex or Justin, no pressure. Anything out of you?
1: Yeah, I'll jump in here. This is less about something that is directly engaging sports, though uh, he has been working with people in the NBA in the past, but For Celtics fans and Celtics organization, if anyone in the organization listens to this, uh, reach out to Boston University's new anti-racist institute and Dr. Ibram Kendi. He is Mm -hmm. a great voice in this struggle. He's a resource right in your backyard, and I would really, really, really love to see y'all work together more because you're right next to each other.
0: And I'll jump in and say kind of keeping it local. So obviously we know about Jalen Brown, you know, we know about Grant Williams. These are guys that have a track record of kind of being involved in these activist spaces. Um, But one player that uh, is on the Celtics and kind of doesn't get mentioned as much, but I think is very much a part of this is Marcus Smart, uh, who I think... He he was at the protests in 2019. He's been pretty active in these spaces. And if you have a chance, I would highly encourage, I I forget who wrote the article, but there's a really great article that came out for The Undefeated, I think a while back, kind of covering Marcus Smart's life story and where he came from. Mark Spears. Yeah, and Mark Spears, right. And, but it's just a fascinating article. It really shines light on Marcus's experience Uh, as a basketball player and as a Black man in America. And he's really startlingly eloquent. And uh, he does a great job of kind of doing some really heavy lifting in this. And, And in doing so, I think he opens up a lot of interesting conversations that really need to be had. So I would say Marcus Smart for me is in his own way, very much doing that kind of work. And the only other ones that I wanna shout out, and this is cheesy, but my students are also doing this work. (laughs) They just started in on a big activism in arts project for school. Uh, We have no idea how it's gonna go. It hasn't been planned out at all, but the fact that they're even doing it and that they seem interested in it uh, really gives me hope for kind of a future model for whatever this thing is that we're trying to do. So I would say keeping it local, Marcus Smart and my history students who are really doing it.
3: That was awesome. Does Marcus <laughs> Smart win the award for the player you love the most when he's on your team, but hate when he's on another team? Absolutely, he's the number one in that regard. The biggest gap between.
2: I think Tom Brady is the number one on that. Yeah, the number one in the NBA. Oh, then yeah. For Without sure. a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> All
3: right, Dave's Tom iron. Brady. I just I just cringed at the name. It's got to be. <laughs> so,
2: he's so handsome and healthy. Fuck it. <sighs> we don't need to go into a Tom Brady thread here.
0: I'm not a Patriots fan. I know that's hey! a great sin to be a Boston podcaster isn't a what
2: Patriots fan, but. Yeah. All right, well, Dave, hopefully when you come on to talk about why the Knicks aren't going to make the playoffs because the Wizards are going to beat them in the play-in tournament. We will have fixed the state of the world, although I have my doubts. Um, Until then, Dave Zirin, thanks so much for coming on. This was, I I think it's very obvious how much fun we
3: had. I think we we all. I had Had my last, like,
2: two pounds of anger just
3: now. (laughs) No, this was cathartic for me, too. Uh, You know, for folks listening, if you don't know me, this is uh, not my best time of day because this is when everybody piles into the house. And so I get a little overwhelmed with everybody's immediate needs and demands. But I'm really glad I did it at this time because we got all of you around the horn. And it, um, it was really cathartic. So I had a blast, too.
2: Well, again, hopefully we we solved all the world's problems, so we can talk X's and O's next time. But if we have to talk about the state of the world, that would work too. Thanks again.
3: Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Bye.